Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. As I was looking into the roots of my Christian faith, into the history of Christianity and the Church and the Bible and why I believed what I believed, I bumped into the Catholic Church. It was when I began reading from church documents, from the early church fathers, from Catholic authors and theologians, that I realized that what I thought I knew about Catholicism was often wrong, completely wrong. It was based on misinformation and, in large part, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I sit down with influential Catholic thinkers to talk about real Catholic topics from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I sit down for part two of a fantastic two-part interview with Catholic convert Paul McCusker. If you were an evangelical growing up in a certain time and place, or if you were evangelical parents raising kids at a certain time and in a certain place, you may not have heard of the name Paul McCusker, but you will certainly know the name Adventures in Odyssey. This is the award-winning radio drama series from Focus on the Family's Radio Theater. Paul is the guy behind all of that, and he is a Catholic convert. We sit down to discuss his journey. We began in part one to unpack his faith life, how he grew up, and how he eventually became Catholic. This part two of the series, we dig in even deeper. It's fantastic. Since becoming Catholic, Paul has gone on to work for the Augustine Institute as Senior Director of Creative Content there. He's produced The Legends of Robin Hood audio drama, as well as Brother Francis, the Barefoot Saint of Azizi, The Trials of St. Patrick, and An Ode to St. Cecilia. He's also worked on a number of published works in a first reader series, The Adventures of Nick and Sam, The Virtue Chronicles, and several tie-in novels to The Adventures in Odyssey series. This is part two of our fantastic interview. This podcast is brought to you in part by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic, where even one or two dollars a month helps to keep this show going. It is, after all, supported in large part by you guys, so thank you. And I have a new patron this month to thank. Thank you, John, for your support. You guys help to keep this thing going. There also is a new way of supporting this show through one-time donations. Go to paypal.me slash cordialcatholic to give a one-time donation to this show. And we have our very first one-time donor. Thank you, Juan, for your generous support of the show. You guys, your prayer, your fasting, and your financial support helps to keep this show going and to keep this show growing and reaching new people. I get emails all the time from new listeners thankful for this show. And it's you guys that underpin that whole thing. So thank you. And now, without any further ado, let's jump right back into my interview with Paul McCusker. Again, if you have not heard part one of this two-part interview, go back, do yourself a favor, and check that part out first, because we dive right in in this part two, and you've missed so much of Paul's fantastic story. Seriously, guys, both parts of this interview are just fantastic listening, and I've been so blessed to be able to sit down and talk to Paul for such a long time. It was an amazing experience, one of those rare career-defining experiences, and my career in podcasting so far has been quite short, so I'm very grateful. Without any further ado, here we go, Paul McCusker 
Catholic Convert, Part 2. Please listen and enjoy. All right, so I'm wondering then uh, if you can speak with all this in mind. I mean, how has your conversion kind of impacted your life and, and your own writing and your own understanding of your faith? Well, something like that hits at all levels, especially moving from you know the evangelical to uh, the Catholic, because obviously – uh, among some evangelicals, it's like you've switched teams. You're now playing for the other team. And uh, I was very fortunate for the most part. Uh, it, my job had focused on the family. Uh, they were fairly relaxed about it when I told them. Uh, some of my family members were upset. They were offended. Uh, and they just simply couldn't fathom uh, why I would do such a thing. Um Though I always find it funny, and I don't know if uh, some of the other converts have said the same thing, but more often than not, people really don't actually want to talk to me about it. I mean, I will hear secondhand that they were upset or that there are questions or they can't imagine why I would do such a thing. But I don't remember any of them actually sitting down to say, why don't you explain to us what's behind this? You know, Instead, they sort of take it as some sort of a decision that I made for whatever reason. They don't really either want to know or they don't care. And uh, and that's unfortunate because I would have been happy to explain simply or as simply as I could. And um, so I was, uh, I've had some disruptions, breaks really, but some disruptions to relationships because of the move. And that influences things. And um, my wife, in fact, uh, was not, involved in the journey at the level that I was. She knew I was in investigating and exploring all this. I don't think she ever expected me to become Catholic. I don't know that I did either, but uh, when it was clear that I I was going to, um, it was then a question of whether she would, and she was not prepared to do that. In fact, uh, she was received into the church just last year, some you know, eight, nine, ten years after I was received in. Um, but she was also gracious during that time because we agreed that the kids should be raised in the Catholic Church. And she would attend Mass with us every Sunday. I mean, she wouldn't go forward for the Eucharist or anything, but she um, but she attended. I mean, we went as a family, which was, uh, I think, gracious considering her discomfort with some of it. And, uh, and then it's influenced everything else. Uh, after I became Catholic, I did wonder if I would be able to do for the church what I was doing for the evangelical community as a, as a writer, as a storyteller. And I have to say, for the first few years, I thought the answer was no. Uh, it seemed like unless, you know, my name was Michael O'Brien, there was no getting published as a, a writer of fiction. <laughs> and... Um, and while people and leaders and uh, give assent to the power of story, there didn't seem to be very many organizations, entities, apostolates, or whatever that were interested in pursuing it at, at a real level. Um, and we seemed to be consumed by the teaching style rather than other other ways of communicating. And um, and then it was through a variety of circumstances I wound up meeting with Dr. Tim Gray, and um, he has a passion for story, and uh, he 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 said at some point you and I are going to work together and we're gonna we're gonna figure out how to make this happen, and uh, and eventually it did. He he met with me and actually got me to consider doing something I had never thought of doing or I never thought I would be able to do and that was leave what I was doing for focus on the family and the evangelical community and go over to the Catholic community and try to create stories there and uh, Tim Gray made that possible at the Augustine Institute um, and that is what I've been doing for the last uh, five years in fact um, and it's been very gratifying I mean it's still an experiment the Catholic community is very different from the evangelical community in terms of sensibilities, in terms of what they want and need and expect when it comes to things like 
story and entertainment and that sort of thing. And uh, and so in many ways, we're still trying to figure it out. <laughs> and I find it fascinating that now you are, and maybe you, you weren't in the same way uh, before, able to draw on the lives of these, of these saints. I mean, I don't know what it was like for you uh, in your experience, but as an evangelical, for me, we didn't have a, there were some saints that we had a, a passing uh, understanding of uh, you know Saint Francis, yes. of course, is is okay with the evangelicals, but uh, suddenly, as a Catholic, I was exposed to, and you would have to to draw from this great well, this enormous history of these holy people that the Church holds up to us as exemplars or exemplars. Yeah, well, well, see, and it's funny about that because I have told the story, and I and I don't know how it goes over when I say it, but when I became Catholic. I mean, obviously, I was aware of some of the saints, but when when I met Tim Gray and we and he said, "Okay, let's do audio drama," I said, "Great! Well, I've got ideas we can start." And he said, "Well, let's start with a saint, and probably the obvious starting point would be Saint Francis." And I I kind of groaned to be honest, because my sense is that there's tons of stuff in the Catholic community about the saints, and too often from where I sat, it seemed like the saints were sort of put in the face of Catholics, like that older brother or sister who are always doing great at school and your parents are going, see, why can't you be more like them? <laughs> and so I, I, I kind of backed up a little bit and said, oh, do we have to start with the saints? I mean, I just don't even know what the stories are, if there are any good stories in there. I mean, I'm sure there must be, but I don't know, St. Francis was kind of uh, a bit whacked out, hippie-like, wasn't he? And he said, well, you know, check into it. Let's see. And I said, well, let me see what kind of story there is. Well, then, of course, I start researching the life of Francis. And I'm looking at him uh, as uh, as a marvel. I mean, he was very – I mean, when I'm doing a drama, I have to get to the heart of the subject. And so – it doesn't matter whether it's a saint or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis, or anybody. If I'm going to write a drama, I've kind of got to figure out who the person is and what's motivating them and what's what's why are they making the decisions they're making? What's really going on? Uh, it's like any normal character development that you would do in a story. It just happens to be, in this case, about a saint. And as I dug into the life of St. Francis, and then again, St. Patrick and St. Cecilia, and even Robin Hood, um, who, of course, is not a saint, though I suppose could be in some way. Um, I had to dig in, and the more I dug in, the more I came to understand them as people like we are, who were called by God to do things in their times and places and really what differentiates them in so many ways from us is only that they said yes. They said they would do it, come what may. And that's a key phrase for me. It was, it was not a qualified, yes, Lord, I'll follow you as long as, you know, X, Y, and Z happens. Like they're making a deal, they're haggling with them. That the saints generally did what God asked them to do uh, wholeheartedly and almost recklessly. And, and just said, okay, whatever happens, I am in God's hands. Everything's in God's hands. I, I am here to serve and obey. Uh, even now, I'm, I'm actually doing a novel um, uh, tied into the Virtue Chronicle series that I'm doing for the Augustine Institute. About It's about Joan of Arc. So I'm writing about her now and, again, digging into her life and motivations. And it's that common theme. Uh you know, here am I, send me, and 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 let whatever happens happen, uh, and I, I am there, and and that to me is the is a big thing. So I've I have come to appreciate the saints uh, <laughs> more than I may have before because of that. No, oh, that's that's fantastically said. You mentioned before that that reading as well as as writing has always been influential. I guess maybe, you know, if there are two themes of your faith journey, it's, it's moving yep. across the country or to different countries and and uh, your love for reading and for writing. So 
When you began to uh, wrestle with these um, these questions of authority and and the apostolic tradition and who could interpret these things and who could teach rightly and and who had that authority, were there things that you read that influenced you in that area as well? Well, there was, but here that's the funny thing. Earlier, I had said that it was a story. It seems like there are markers and there's a story. So. Uh, as a Baptist, I'd read Greatest Story Ever Told, and that was key to taking me into a, a, a deeper place because of this, the way Fulton Orsler described the crucifixion scene. So I still point to that as, as a key story for the time. When I became Anglican, um, to help me understand, I mean, I, I knew C.S. Lewis, and then I discovered J.B. Phillips, who did a translation of the New Testament, but wrote tons of other books as well, and he was Anglican. And then I read a series of novels by a woman named Susan Howitch, who kind of tracks leapfrogs through the 20th century Church of England reality. And through her novels, I kind of came to understand a lot more about Anglicanism than I had understood before. And they were important to me. Well, in the journey into the Catholic Church, it's funny, Father John Bartunek, who does a lot of writing himself, and he and I, he became so important to me and still is very important to me as a friend. But in the journey, um, he and I would talk movies, we would talk stories, we would talk all kinds of things. And one day he said, um, you know, I have a book I'd like you to read. It's a novel, and technically it shouldn't work because it's very didactic. It's almost like a teaching novel. But I'd be curious what you think of it. It's by John Henry Newman, and it's called Loss and Gain. Now, I was familiar with John Henry Newman uh, in a in that passing way where I saw quotes from him. I think I had uh, read a bit of his his writings, but I didn't know he had written a novel. So Father John rather cleverly asked me to read this thing. And as I'm reading it, I am so identifying with this lead character and his spiritual journey because it reflected mine. And I, it was really funny because I actually I, – I, I refused to read the end of the book. I got down to the last two or three chapters – and I recognized where it was going. And I thought, no, I'm not going to finish this until I have made my decision and done what I need to do. And um, so I finished it after the fact. And um, it was <laughs> it was an interesting read. And it was a bit didactic because it's, it's an Oxford student who's going through this journey in the early 1800s. And, um, and it sort of reflected Newman's own journey to some degree. But... Um, I've been fascinated, but not surprised uh, that story has been a key part of it um, for me and my journey. And um, I, I read a lot of other things. Um, I, it's funny, I didn't read a lot of the church fathers, uh, because having read the Gospels and the Book of Acts and just other things, the DDK and some other things through that, I... Um, I think I was getting my questions answered, and then I had living witnesses um, who were good examples and role models for Catholicism um, it, around me, a Father John Bartunek, Archbishop Chaput, um, a lot of others that I began to read in the present day to see what it looks like now. Uh, and they influenced me. And of course, they're always referencing back to the saints and to some of the church fathers and people like that. Uh, so it, it's been varied in the reading. I'm not as well read as I wish I were. Um, but at the same time, I am content, if I can say that, in, in what's available to me by way of, of books and reading. Um, and, and I've tried to read some of the, the Catholic, so-called Catholic fiction. Uh, but that was the other distressing thing for me was Catholic fiction usually meant, well, read Flannery O'Connor <laughs> and in the past or, uh, you know, uh, Michael O'Brien now. <laughs> and it seems to be about those two. And then there are the pseudo-Catholic writers, I, I don't mean to sound judgmental, but like Graham Greene and others, who I wouldn't call them Catholic writers. They're more writing about Catholic themes and not always writing very well about them, uh, or at least not positively about them. And uh, so part of my passion would be 
okay, so how do we tell stories now that are exploring Catholic themes, but from a, a Catholic perspective? And I don't mean PR, I don't mean proselytizing, I just mean uh, a point of view that's infused with a fairly orthodox Catholic perspective. Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and you know, like I said earlier, we're very grateful that you're uh, you're pursuing those those questions. You know, I, I touched on the idea of uh, a certain kind of loneliness, maybe for the convert uh, earlier on in a conversation, right. and it, I've often heard it likened by other converts to you know uh, the parable of the pearl of great price is the best way of describing it, just using using Jesus's own example, right? You find this amazing right. Catholic church that kind of has this enormous tradition that is so compelling and speaks to the questions of authority and questions of how we can interpret things properly. And this this thing looks amazing and beautiful, and, and we find it. We converts find it, and you sell everything to go and to go and buy that field and, and gain mm-hmm. that church. But then there's the experience of well, you, you touched on this earlier of maybe nobody even asking you questions about that. You know, nobody maybe following you in right away. Uh, it seems like you found this amazing yeah. thing and you're excited about it. But then this loneliness comes when you're kind of the only one playing on that team, and it seems like you know nobody else is excited as I am about this amazing thing that I've found. Um, well, yeah, it's like I suppose it's like Abraham leaving his home country to go to foreign lands, and I and it and we really shouldn't underestimate that when we're talking like this. Um, I I was a bit reckless in the sense that as the journey went, I was determined to follow the questions to the answer, and then was duty bound to act on the answer. I, I didn't see it as some academic exercise. I really wanted to know, okay, who has the authority to interpret Scripture and establish doctrine? But I can tell you the few conversations I've had with a couple of people uh, about that question, for example. I don't even talk about my journey. I just ask the question. And when I put that to some Protestants, I can see the look in their eyes because that it's not a trick question. In fact, some of them, I had one who said, oh, that's a trick question. You're tricking me. I said, it's not a trick question. It's a real question. And the answer actually can determine a lot. And I can see and sense this feeling of, I really don't want to answer that question because if I do, then it could change my life. And I like my church. My family likes my church. I don't want to leave my church. And that's a lot of the loneliness you're talking about, that for those of us who are converts, we really are leaving not just, I don't know, it's not like leaving a town and moving to another town. It's it's leaving an ent- entire lifestyle and leaving all the friends and relationships that are connected to that lifestyle, or you're at risk of, of losing them in many ways. And so when you embark on that, um, the loneliness does come from, well, who do I talk to? I'm now making a new set of friends, and in the Catholic Church, maybe, but as you and I may know, I don't know how your church is, but most of the Catholic churches I've been to are nothing like the evangelical churches where people will hang around for an hour after the service, drinking coffee and talking, you know. Uh, In fact, most of the parish experiences I've seen in the Catholic Church, people are making a beeline for their cars, sometimes even before the mass is officially <laughs> over. And I have two theories about that. One theory is they're doing it because they don't want to make new friends. They're seeing this as an event they need to do, and then they're going to leave and go back to their regular lives and the relationships they have there. And then the other half of the time, I think people are making a beeline for their cars because they're afraid they'll make eye contact and someone will ask them to volunteer for something. <laughs> so so whichever the reason, um, making friends uh, in the Catholic Church isn't always easy. And then it's not just making friends. It's, of course, trying to make new friendships at a deeper level, which is also uh, difficult. Um, I mean, it's hard enough to make friends in any context that are deep where you really do click and connect. But um, uh, so the loneliness, I, I think if I'm, I'm hearing you right, I'm agreeing that that you are sort of, if not ostracized from those in your former lifestyle, your former community, uh, you certainly don't feel 
attached in the same way. And I still have a lot of evangelical friends, but but there is something that has fundamentally changed. So we can have conversations in a mere Christianity sort of way, but there's always that dissonance between where they are and where I am. And uh, and and it's been it, it's had times when uh, I've had times when it was a challenge. And there were times when I, I was surprised to discover what a big baby I am about relationships. That the two or three Catholic friends that I really clicked with, uh, in one case, you know, one of uh, one of the moved from town, and I felt almost abandoned, you know. Um, and uh, and I, I think as a Catholic, I have come to rely on relationships almost more than I may have as an evangelical, or maybe I just don't take them for granted. Maybe that's the better way to say it. But it's, um, it, I think there's a whole manual that could be written for converts that talk, that, that should talk about uh, what to expect, what you might encounter, what you might encounter from former friends, especially Protestants, and these drive-by Bible verses that get shot at you and and those statements, oh, well, I don't know, you, you know, you believe that and it's not in the scripture, you know, but as soon as you get that and you begin to respond to it, then they claim you're being defensive. I mean, there's a whole list of things that could be put out there to say, well, you ought to be warned about this. Yeah, it is such a fascinating animal. I mean, uh, you mentioned the Amazing Parish Movement earlier, which is uh, something that our that our parish up here in Canada is one of the few that are involved in that uh, this side of the border. And one of the things that you know we do, which is kind of revolutionary, is is like a coffee hour after uh, after mass. We call it Catholic Cafe, mm-hmm. and and you know it's it's kind of revolutionary in the church, but it's that opportunity to to meet with other people who are who are at the same life stage as you. And, I mean, you talk about how hard it is to make friends. I mean, we've got our, our toddler and our, <laughs> you know, our, our, our kindergarten kid running around the parish hall, and trying to meet people is, is absolutely a challenge. But uh, those, those right. places don't even exist sometimes in Catholic churches, and, and it breeds a kind of isolation, like you're talking about. And then the one or two friends you have... Um, I think of a men's group I was involved in just after I converted, and you talk about being a baby for relationships. I, I didn't get invited after a couple months of going because the email list changed or something, and I just felt so, I felt so upset and offended. <laughs> like, but I want to be your friend, guys, but but nobody, yeah, you know, and it wasn't even it wasn't even intentional. But those relationships that I was forming as as a Catholic then. You know, they took on a life of their own because I felt like you know I needed people who are who are in the same orbit as me. Yeah, well, and I, I think a lot of it. I mean, my wife actually said that before she became Catholic. Um, I just remember her at one point saying, "Why do why do Catholics make it so hard?" Um, you know, it feels like they're just all these kind of doors and barriers and things that you've got to get through and hoops you've got to jump through just to hit a basic level of relationship and uh, engagement. And uh, I have a theory, and and so far after all these years, it has not been disproven, that a key difference between Catholics and Protestants, uh, and especially if we're talking about community and market, let's say marketplace, for example, a big difference is that Catholics are built up around an event-based reality. And what I mean by event is Mass on Sunday, uh, church events, things that are sacramental, things that are required. It's duty-based in that respect. So, so many of them, when they go to church, that's what I mean about beeline for the car. They're not thinking, I am coming here to establish a new relationship with anyone at the church except those that I just happen to talk to for some reason. I'm here to do this thing, this this engage in this event, perform this duty, and then get back to my real life. And I and I'm not even saying that to 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 disparage. It's just I think a reality of of the the community to some degree. Whereas the evangelical uh, community is very um, it's lifestyle based. They are at church because they want to be there. Unlike many Catholics who are at church because they have to be. Uh, they are not event-based in the same way. They go to church, they hang out, 
drink coffee, hang out, engage, because relationships are part of the lifestyle of their faith. And it extends all the way into this marketplace reality, as as you would know. Uh, everything, you know, from the record industry, the book industry, the Bible industry, all the way down to refrigerator magnets with, you know, kittens and Bible verses. Uh, the evangelical perspective is automatically bundled into a lifestyle expectation. In the Catholic world, it's not. You have highly engaged Catholics, of course, who do, and they will have crucifixes at home. Some of them may even have an altar. They may have things because they're highly engaged. But the funny thing about even that is is you don't get a sense of crosstalk a lot. You have highly engaged Catholics, but you don't get a sense that they're necessarily looking for other highly engaged Catholics to hang out with like you do in the evangelical community. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. It's a a fascinating dynamic. We have found that at the Augustine Institute. You know, if, if a pastor gets up in an evangelical church, and if he's credible and he holds up a book or a version of the Bible or a video or a music and says, hey, this is the greatest thing I've seen all year, Amazon will spike because everybody in the congregation will buy it. And we found that at Focus in the Family. People would be uh, have a benefit, whether it's Adventures in Odyssey or when Dr. Dobson or now Jim Daly would do a broadcast. And evangelicals are constantly sharing resources. Oh, you're having a problem with that? Oh, I've just read this great book. and Or I've, I've listened to this tape or tape. Listen, now I'm showing my age. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm this audio thing or I'm, I've watched this video. And they're constantly sharing resources. It's a, it's a kind of evangelism internally of this worked for me, it'll work for you. Hey, this will help you with your prayer life or whatever. When the Catholic community, even when Catholics seem to discover something new and good, it's like they are either hesitant or don't necessarily even think to turn to somebody else and go, oh, this is great. You should check this out. Whether it's you know I don't know, the August or formed, you know we do the Augustine Institute is behind formed.org, which is in a lot of parishes now, and it's videos and audio and books and everything else, like Netflix. It's part of a subscription base, but people use formed, but they won't talk about it. Catholics will use things and benefit from things, but I don't get a sense that they want to tell others about it. They don't think to do it. There's nothing malicious or anything. They just, they're not thinking, oh, I should share this with so-and-so. Now, they might if they're a mom or a dad and you're engaged on a different level that isn't Catholic, but it's part of life, then they might think to. I don't know. That's my theory. I'm staying with it until somebody tells me otherwise. (laughs) No, it's such an interesting idea. Um, And I think of two things. I think on on the one hand, uh, you know, something like formed.org, which is uh, coming into the parishes now, this is kind of the antithesis. So this is kind of... working to normalize this culture of we're not just going to mass and celebrating mass and then leaving you know there's opportunities for yeah. digging deeper into your faith and it's it's fascinating that you find yourself at the Augustine Institute which i feel like is really um, like I said, normalizing that kind of a behavior, th- that kind of an expectation for Catholics. You can't just um, go to Mass and that's it. No, no, no. You should be uh, yeah. a disciple, right? That's the word that, that we use as yeah. evangelicals. Yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right in this regard because one of the things, I, a conversation I had with Dr. Tim Gray not long after I started working with them was um, I actually said, do you realize you are – you are pushing into four or five very new areas for the Catholic Church because the Augustine Institute was creating things that were meant to be used in the context of the parish and through the parish, so people would engage that way. But formed.org in audio dramas and a lot of the things we began to create were more in the lifestyle realm and not the parish realm. And I, I kept saying, you you understand you are you are pushing into several unknowns here with the Catholic community. The highly engaged Catholics, yeah, they'll get it. But you're actually trying to give people 
a motivation, an excuse, a reason to engage in their Catholicism outside of the church. And he would kind of give me this smile like, yeah, I know. <laughs> he's very he's very evangelical in his Catholicism. He's a cradle Catholic, but his sensibilities about Scripture and about living uh, a faith-filled life, uh, some of us from the evangelical community would look at it and say, He's he's got the, the the evangelical sensibility for what he's trying to do, but it's still very Catholic. It's not an evangelical wannabe kind of thing that you sometimes see in Catholicism, especially when it comes to like praise music and things like that, where the Catholic Church acts like it wants to do whatever the Protestants are doing because they think it'll bring people in. Um, he is at heart he's part of the new evangelization and. That's where I think the the realities are meeting, uh, the Catholic sense, but with this other lifestyle reality um, where Catholics really can engage at home and not feel punished for having done it. <laughs> you know, very often it's the stuff is boring. Very often the stuff is poorly done. Very often it's just dry. Whereas with this whole new resurgence of interest in the video, visual arts and audio and everything else, we actually are trying to make it a bit more enjoyable for Catholics to engage in their Catholicism uh, at home. Well, it's unfortunate because then it's a bit less uh, penitential <laughs> if it's enjoyable to well, listen to. <laughs> well, well, this is true, but I never thought that Mass was supposed to be a purgative experience, <laughs> and yet it so often felt like it was when we were sitting through some some horrible, well, uh, horrible as in just painful to listen to music or homilies or whatever the case yeah. may be. And uh, uh, and I know that's not true for all parishes, but clearly it's true enough that an organization like Amazing Parish, Parish even exists in order to try to help churches engage in a different way um, in terms of goodness, beauty, and well, truth. Well, I think of something interesting. You, you talked a minute ago about, um, about the Catholic lifestyle, and and how you could have home altars and these kinds of things, and and it kind of it's still a, a separate kind of practice. And I th I think it may have been uh, Marcus Grodi who said this. I don't remember exactly. I may be wrong about that, but the idea that from the outside perspective, as an evangelical or or a, a non-Catholic Christian of any stripe, uh, good Catholics and bad Catholics often look the same. You know, bad Catholics who aren't practicing yes. their faith look kind. You know, look like a, a bad Catholic. But by the same token, somebody who's praying the Rosary and has a home altar and all these different kind of very Catholicy type things, that would also appear to be, say, uh, bad in quotes to a non-Catholic Christian. That would look like idolatry or or, or some kind of paganism or or superstition. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely, yeah, that's right. I, I've marveled over that, that even in conversations with Protestants about, you know, oh, you worship saints. And I have to concede, it looks like worship to you based on your rules, based on what you think it is. It may look like that, but it isn't. And any Catholic who is worshiping uh, anyone other than God is not following the Catholic Church, but it, I concede that things look like what they aren't. And and see, and this is the other thing, when I went back and, and mentioned about being Baptist and thinking, oh, well, everybody who claims to be a Christian is like this, and then I get to Southern California, and even if we sat down and compared notes on doctrine and said, oh, yeah, well, we all, in our checklist of the top 10 things, we all agree, but complete implementation of faith and lifestyle was different. And there are some people who would say, oh, well, if you use bad language, then clearly you're not a Christian. Even if you just slip up and say it, well, then you're not. And then even the Baptist in me would say, well, wait a minute, where is, where is the, the biblical statement that how you speak is part of your salvation in the sense of being saved in the way that Protestants define that? Um, so... It's the same thing. I find that when it comes to Catholicism, especially when you have outsiders judging what it is and what it looks like and what looks like discrepancies, some of those discrepancies aren't even 
true spirituality. They're just superficial manifestations. Do you know what I mean? Uh, that there are superficial things that everybody does, but it's where people draw lines. You know, there are some Christians who would say, if you drink, then you're not a Christian. If you drink any alcohol, you're not a Christian. You know, and then you have of the same denomination people saying, well, no, there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol as long as you don't do it to excess. You know, it's uh, maybe I rabbit trailed away from what you were saying, but the appearances and what those appearances truly represent um, are confusing within the two communities. You know, when sometimes I think when Catholics look at Protestants and Protestants look at Catholic, uh, they don't, they're using some of the same words and they seem to be doing some of the same things, but they have completely different meanings. Um, the, the example I use, by the way, is, is going to a foreign country. Um, and I've often said this, that if you invite a Protestant into a Catholic church, it's kind of like going to a foreign country. And I remember one of the first times I went to England, for example, and I went with a friend of mine from America. And I actually heard this person look at something that the British do. And he said the words, well, that's stupid. Why do they do that? And that's a different response from, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder why they do that. And then seek the answer. Well, when Protestants often go into Catholic churches, they look at the statues, they look at the kneeling, they look at all this stuff that they've been told is somehow pagan. And what they say essentially is, well, that's stupid. I, you know, why do they do that? Or that's not in the Bible. Why do they do that? Whereas the one that walks in and goes, okay, that's interesting. That's different. I wonder why they do that and actually hang out to get an answer to that question. See, you see, they're two completely different, mm. different directions. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. A fundamentally different uh, approach. You know, I think of a, a, a friend of mine who, uh, when I was journeying the Catholic Church, my wife and I met with uh, another couple and and uh, I think she was raised Catholic for a bit of her life, and she mentioned one experience at, at Mass as an example of how, how Mass was kind of this boring thing that just seemed like rote and ritual. And she described this woman in front of her in the pew, and she said, well, she just read the whole time from her, from her book through the whole Mass, and that was it. And it took me, uh, you know, a, a couple of years of once I became Catholic to realize what I'm pretty sure she saw was this woman ahead of her following along in the readings of the Mass in, in the Missalette, right? But it, but it looks yeah. from the outside perspective as if this person is just reading their book, reading a novel, you know, a Harlequin yeah. Romance or something or, during or, Mass. Or, or whatever. Well, and it's much like the view that's like, well, if you're doing the same thing every week, that's just mind-numbingly boring. How can you do that? And not even realizing C.S. Lewis himself argued against a lot of variations in the worship services because then you're concentrating uh, not on worship, you're concentrating on the on the variations that he found great comfort and help in what some call routine and what we call uh, solid liturgy. Um, and that that side of it is also not, I think, articulated very well in terms of experience because we project into other people's uh, other people our experiences so uh, an evangelical it has certain expectations about what worship is and what it should be then looks at the catholic version and goes oh well that's just not right at all even and they're not even thinking theologically they're just thinking in terms of their own life and experience and and by the way uh, i've heard it from multiple sources that some of the most vehement anti-catholics are former Catholics who were clearly misinformed in their Catholic experience. Now, some of them I know left the Catholic Church for tragic reasons, which are horrible and and painful uh, and heartbreaking. But there are a lot of for and I met them uh, these former Catholics who just oozed poison about the Catholic Church and the Catholic experience. And now that I'm Catholic and I meet them or I hear them. Um, I realized that a lot of it was bad catechism, creating false expectations, or the fact that they just, uh, the relational side of it got lost. And again, they got caught up in the duty 
of their Catholicism and not the devotion. And, uh, and, and it wrecked them, and then they were nabbed by uh, Protestants or some other group or even atheism, and they have nothing good to say about the Catholic Church at all. And, and sometimes they're the harshest. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Okay, I have one last question for you. I, say somebody uh, puts Paul McCusker in, into Google and, you know, that, that guy from Adventures in Odyssey who, who was such a, uh, such a formative part of my, my, my growing up. Uh, they find you now and they wonder, what, what is he, what is this guy up to? Based on some of the things you're, where you're working and, and what you're doing. What would you say to somebody who, um, who you played a role in, in, in forming them, forming their, their love for Christ, their love for the, the Bible and the church? What would you say to that person now discovering you w- once again and, and where you are now in your own life journey? Well, I, first I would want to know what they want to know. Are they really interested in, in the journey? Are they interested in um, why I've made the choices that I've made that lead me to where I am? I was actually very careful for a very long time because when I became Catholic, I was very protective about it. Not that I was ashamed or embarrassed, but I didn't want Focus on the Family and Adventures in Odyssey to suffer because I had made the decision. And what I mean is a friend of mine um, used to joke that he was a bit of a celebrity among his friends because he was friends with someone who worked on Adventures in Odyssey. Well, apparently one day he was talking to them and said, oh, by the way, um, uh, you know, Paul McCusker became Catholic. And the person he was talking to said, oh, well, that's it. I guess we can't listen to Odyssey anymore. It's over. And he was like, well, why? He said, well, if he's become Catholic, I mean, that's just so wrong and it's going to show up on the show. Like I'm going to put in, you know, backward masking to, you know, worship Mary and, you know, give all your money to the Pope or something. (laughs) And, and I realized that was very early on. And I thought I need to be careful because I don't want to throw, I don't want to derail people um, by this decision. And I don't think it should fall back on, odyssey or focus on the family that I've made the decision, especially if I'm not given the chance to explain it. And that's always the hardest part. If people are passing judgment without the explanation, without understanding, they're going, well, that's stupid. Why did he do that? Um, We're already at a disadvantage. And I know there are some websites and some blogs and people have commented in a very negative way about my doing that. I'm just the whole time hoping they won't take it out on the show. Um, because anybody would be hard-pressed to prove that my becoming Catholic changed the direction of the show in a Catholic direction, which it did not. Um, So if they were to ask, then I would do it like I would anybody who would ask, which is first to discern, do they really want to know the answer, Um, and, and then give a chance to explain my journey, and let them decide for themselves. I don't usually explain to try to proselytize. I just explain so that people will understand if it's helpful. Um, and, and leave it at that. Um, fortunately, as a writer, my work also kind of speaks for itself. In other words, if um, I was at a film conference recently, and it was uh, evangelically sponsored, and I was there in part because of Adventures in Odyssey and a lot of the work I've done. But some of them actually were familiar with my audio dramas about the, the saints. And even in that case, I'm not necessarily writing to proselytize. I'm trying to represent the life of, of St. Francis, which means it's inherently Catholic. Even writing about Robin Hood, the time period that Robin Hood um, lived and, and did what he did, um, was a, it was a Catholic time. And so it makes sense for me to infuse Catholicism in there. I would have done it as a Protestant. I would have had to. Because otherwise, I wouldn't be honest in in my retelling of history. But um, I, I hope that doesn't sound like a cop out. Uh, I think I've found as a Catholic, there's no one size fits all. That often, when people want to know if they dare to ask why I've made the decision, uh, they're carrying a lot of baggage with them, and I need to discern what that is as I'm trying to explain uh, my spiritual journey and why I am where I am. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> That's very well said. 
Listen, this has been uh, an absolute thrill for me to talk to you. I appreciate your time. This has been, I think, a fantastic conversation, or a couple of conversations. Where could people go to find out more about what you're doing and what you're up to and, and what you're writing and working on these days? Sure. Well, um, I am working with the Augustine Institute, as I've said, and uh, their website, the Augusta, it's augustininstitute.org, is a good place to go. Um, formed.org i should mention that again because um it is a it's a brilliant thing and um and a lot of what i do appears there uh we also have a website which is air theater a-i-r theater.org um that will tell a lot more about our audio dramas but augustine institute.org will talk about uh the various novels that i'm writing the kids stories that i'm doing and uh and that side of it. And I do have my own website, which um, is uh, paulmccusker.com. Uh, so people can go there, though I, I don't know how updated it is. Uh, we've been a bit sloppy about that. <laughs> well, that's how it goes. Well, yeah. thank you so much for being on the show for your time. I want to say God bless you and your family and this absolutely fantastic work you are doing for the church. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very kind, Keith. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. I hope you enjoyed that fantastic two-part interview with Paul McCusker. Make sure to check out the show notes for this show in your podcatching app or at thecordialcatholic.com for information on how to find out more about Paul McCusker. His website links to the fantastic books he's written and the audio dramas he has produced. He's a guy to definitely keep a watch out for. He's creating fantastic stuff all the time. Please subscribe to or follow this podcast wherever you find it. Please leave ratings and reviews if you can. Those help to push the podcast out to new people as well. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and Cordial Catholic at gmail.com. Please do email me. Please reach out. I love hearing where you're listening from, who you are, and why you choose to listen. It's incredibly edifying, and I, I love to hear from you guys. I write back to all those emails as soon as I can, and thank you. Thank you for your questions, your comments, your feedback. It's all very valuable. If you want to support this show financially, head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic, where even $1 or $2 a month gets you access to a special behind-the-scenes podcast, access to bonus content, and early access to interviews and material as well. $5 or more a month gets you entered into a draw for free books. paypal.me slash cordialcatholic for one-time donations. And friends, thank you so much for listening and for your support. Please pray for me and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.